Good morning, Second Church. Let us stand and be called into the spirit of worship responsibly, reading from this song from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. With all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I give you this day shall be upon your heart. And talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you lie down. Bind them as a sign upon your hand and an emblem in your hand. Let us ever and always take care. Let us say this together. Let us ever and always take care that we forget not our Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery.
Let us come before God in a spirit of confession. The prayer is found on the top page of your order of service. Let's, let's pray in unison. O thou who art holy beyond our telling, with whom we dare not trifle, show us our poverty of spirit and the leanness of our souls. Give us the will to search out new definitions of self-denial. Teach our untaught hearts to love with a love like thine. Curb our sloth. Expose the timidity and unbelief that lie behind our craving for security. Give us, in these days, to know as we have not yet known Jesus Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. These mercies we seek in faith and with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Assurance of Pardon. My child, I am the Lord who gives strength in the day of tribulation. Come unto me when it is not well with you. Consider well that I am the one who rescues them who trust in me, and that apart from me there is neither powerful help, nor profitable counsel, nor lasting remedy. Having now recovered breath after the tempest, Gather strength again in the light of my mercies, for I am at hand, says the Lord, to repair all in most plentiful measure. Good morning, Heidi. Will you be joined by anyone else? Oh, Otto, good. Two, two is good. Did either of you get a terrible cold this winter? Maybe not. No? Cool. A flu, no flu. Flu was in the news a lot. You might, maybe you did, but you can't remember. I think if you can't remember, that's great, because it means it wasn't awful. Well, you know what causes flu? Look, excellent. Viruses. That's the very word I wanted. I asked a different child in the class at, at, uh, in, in ARS here, and she said, a bacterium. And I said, well, that's a good guess, but actually it's virus, a virus. And there's, <laughs> bacteria can be good. 
Viruses, not so much. At least we don't know about that. But here's a funny thing. Viruses, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Viruses get attacked in our body by white blood cells. Boy, some of these people really know everything. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So all these... My father had a name for blood cells. When we were really young, younger than you, Otto, he called them the little blood fellows. <laughs> I, I could really respond to that when I was four or five years old. Little blood fellows running around inside the body. I almost imagined them running, but not quite. And they would move around and do all kinds of good things to help the body. So little blood fellows. But here's the thing. And the reason that I was talking about this with the school, with the fifth graders in school, is a virus has a, has a bizarre attitude about what it's doing inside your body. It has this attitude. It's all about me. <laughs> I want more of me. I think I'll just try to become millions And maybe more than millions. It's all about me. Now, what do the little blood fellows think? What's on their mind? when They think that the virus is bad. What do they think they're doing? What do you think, Heidi? Helping. The blood fellows do not say, it's all about me. Or the blood cells, if we were to speak like scientists. The blood cells, it's not all about me. It's all about the body I'm in. I'm here to serve. I'm here to help. And they have a job. And we just learned that the white blood cells have a special job, like you said, Otto. They they try to eat the bad stuff. That's true. It does make for a lot of pain in our body when we've got all those blood fellows working so hard on our behalf. It, it kind of overwhelms us sometimes. But what a big distinction. What a big difference is that There's one kind of creature that says, it's all about me. I just want more of me. And they try to multiply. And other parts of our body, what do you think your knee thinks? (laughs) Obviously, knees and elbows and arms don't have a thought in their, they don't have a brain. But if we were to pretend, Heidi, what what would be your knee's point of view? Because I'm a knee, and why would I want to bend? Who... Who asks the knee to bend? Your brain. The knee serves you. (laughs) And it's all what we call a body. And it's a beautiful thing. Now sometimes the church is called the body of... Body of Christ, typically. Body of God is not a bad idea. Body of Christ. Body of Christ. In fact, there's a place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says to the church and that includes you, you are the body of Christ. It's amazing. And individually, you are members of him. You are blood fellows. <laughs> you can think of it like that. We're the blood fellows, and we are part of the body of Christ. That is a beautiful thing. So, in thankfulness to God, we'll pray. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for giving us a reason to serve and an understanding that we are part of a great body. Just like 
the elements of our own bodies. Help us to know when we're behaving like viruses, when we're all about ourselves, so that people can tell us and have us move aside and relearn how to serve and be helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Our first reading is from Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9 and 16 to 24. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. From Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding. 
And the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demonic sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demonic and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. When you get into Bible study, there are often some surprises. And they're fun sometimes and disturbing. Or don't know what to do with them sometimes. All three of the synoptic gospel tell the story of the man with demons in the region of Gadara or Gerasa. It's spelled a little differently in one and another. They all locate this on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been there, you know that it's a lake, not a sea. It's, it's about 12 miles across. It's on a very big body of water. They're all located there. All the versions tell of that steep bank down which the swine rushed headlong. All the versions tell that except the Sea of Galilee doesn't. There are no steep banks on the edges of the Sea of Galilee at the eastern shore. Nowhere. (laughs) Now, it might lead a person to wonder whether this story was subject to the tendency to the fantastic, which is found in folklore across the whole world, and then to ask, well, is that a problem? For some people it is. I suggest not. Not at all when you expose yourself to the inner meaning of a story. Not at all when you consider why a story developed such value, why all the Bible stories developed in a manner incorporating such value that people simply had to hear them told again. They demanded them because they were helping in important ways. I've said this before. Only stories served like lanterns through the storms of time to enable one generation to pass its profoundest knowledge to the next generation. Only stories. Not the news, not expository arguments about the way it is. Only stories hold the truth adequately for generations to receive. So, in my view, it does not really matter whether the man with demons who bruised himself with stones out at the edge of town was 
psychologically and historically speaking, an actual individual man. Because the way that he is described, he is living now and has lived in every generation. The story says that the townspeople restrained the man with shackles and chains, but he broke them and no one had the strength to subdue him. That's what it says. That sounds implausible to me. Either, well, let's think about it. Shackles of some size could restrain him, right? And everybody sleeps sometimes. If they really wanted to, they could have. And so you've got to make a choice as a reader, listener to the story. Either the story has, been, has created him as a cartoon giant, such as never existed, so that Jesus may come on the scene as the hero, which is one way stories get written. Or, alternatively, the people don't really want him fixed. They want him out there, at the edge of town, scaring them to death, being evil. They need him out there. In fact, if they didn't have him out there, they'd have to deal with evil in here, which is where the real action is. They need him out there. In here is where the embers of this ancient story are glowing. This is the reason it got passed on through the lanterns of generations. It's the basic tragedy of society that's in view here. In order to keep a kind of false peace, both within the individual citizens and in their relations with one another, in order to keep a false peace within themselves, the people project their guilt out there on others. We are masters at this here in America. Quoting several of our recent top leaders, out there is the evil empire. You remember that one. Out there is the axis of evil. You remember that one. Or the black super predator, which was the phrase that Bill Clinton found so advantageous to his aims. And then there's bad hombres. We're getting this all the time from the top. The evil is out there. White rich men, by contrast, are always good. They never do anything wrong with their billions of dollars. You must trust them. They are the job creators. We are marinating in this projection of evil on others. When I was young, America was absolutely certain that the evil was communism, right? Most of us remember that. Well, after 9-1-1, we got a new one, Islamic terrorism, and that's been filling the bill ever since. 
But in that interval between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Twin Towers, in between the end of the communist evil and the beginning of the terrorist evil, what filled in America's need for an evil other? The main answer is the black man and the black woman. During those 12 years between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Twin Towers, we put in prison over 2 million black men. Think of that. 2 million black men. The, the prison population of 1975 was one-third of a million. Today and now for 10 years approximately, the number has been two and one-third millions and the vast majority are persons of color. I know you've heard these data before. We'll offer a few more in this sermon. The rate of violent crime has been falling consistently ever since the early 1990s. It still is falling. New York City, as you know, has become the safest large city in America, maybe in the Western world, I don't know. And even though that rate of crime falls and falls and falls, still, very many Americans, and some with, at the top of government, preach that the evil is out there and that we need more shackles, more prisons, because none can subdue them. Oh, I alone can fix it, can fix it. The man at the edge of society, the Gadarene demoniac, as the Bible calls this individual in the story we're told today, that man at the edge of town is living now. And as a nation, we create him. We create him because we need him out there, just as I'm suggesting that's the best interpretation of the old story. We need him out there hurting himself because without him we would have to deal with what's in here. And what's in here, I think the opioid crisis tells us the answer to this question every day. What's in here for the body politic, obviously not for every individual, what's in here is despair. We're a nation in despair. James Baldwin got this right 50 years ago. Unfortunately, I've left my readers and <clears throat> I have to work a little harder to read little print. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and to love themselves and each other and when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. Fire next time, 1962. Twice a month for about 10 years, 
I took part in a conversation with men in the state prison at Attica. I've mentioned that before. I think you've heard about it. The program was run by the Franciscans, and a single brother of that tradition was the main leader. He was there with the group that I was in every Friday. I was not there every Friday. But I've been in there about 200 and some times and been in conversation with the men, some men at Attica. The program that we were involved with offered no inducements whatsoever to come to the group. There were no awards for attendance. There was no course credit. There was no offer of a glowing letter to the parole board. Nothing. This was brilliant by the founder to understand that a man should have only one motivation to come to such a group, which was, it's helping. (laughs) And in fact, that was the same motivation for us volunteers. We did not go in as experts. We weren't offering anything uh, except our presence. And also, we would end up on the hot seat during some of the conversations. We had, there was no difference as far as whose story was to be focused on during a period of this conversation, which usually went about a hundred minutes. It was long enough to be deep. So a dozen men would join three or four volunteers, men and women among the volunteers. And the ground rules would be laid out. Confidentiality for everything that got said. No interrupting one another. No reading from tracts. I don't care whether it's the Bible, the Koran, or something from a philosopher. No reading from tracts. In fact, there was only one rule. Every subject was permissible, provided a man or woman was speaking from personal experience. That's it. Just talk from your experience. Don't go, don't go away from that. And everyone was encouraged that if they were feeling bored by how abstract and unrelated to individual personal experience the conversation had become, pull the brake, stop the conversation, say, this, is, this isn't right. This isn't what we're here for. And let's get back in the groove of self-inquiry, of help, of discovery. Now, it happens that in the year or two before I moved to Buffalo, which was why I was able to take part, because I lived just 40 minutes away from the prison. This is all 20 years ago or so, a little more. In that earlier year or two, a divorce had been looming above me. Obviously not the one with my beautiful wife, Beth, whom you know. You know how it is when you're in prison with your own thoughts and behaviors. Round and round they go. Never a new thought. Never in any help at all. Obsessive. It's like you're a hamster in a wheel. I heard the other day someone said that the reason the hamsters don't stop running is that if they did, their paws would get stuck in the wires of the wheel and that would hurt. So they, <laughs> That's about like it is with the mind. 
at any rate. Whether it's true of the hamster creature, I don't know. But around and around and around. Obsessive. Something changed along in those years. The deadly repetition of the sorrow spurred a new seriousness about growth. And I would observe how often I heard from men inside something similar. One day, they say, I woke up and I said, am I going to do this like this for the whole bit, the whole time I'm in prison? No, something's got to change. With the aid of spiritual guides, I began to experience myself not as prisoner of thoughts and feelings, just forced to respond in a reactive mode like that. There came a degree of freedom, a separation, a space, peace, not like the world gives, but actually a space in which I could observe my thoughts and my feelings. And if you're observing them, you are not in them. You, you can have your thoughts and feelings instead of them having you. This began to grow. And so, where I felt I had been bound, now I concretely experienced freedom. I am not bound. I can see the motives, the energies, how they disturb my process, my hope, my intention. I was growing. And now I was newly resident in Buffalo and alone after the divorce. I was taking part in these Attica conversations within a few months of arriving in the city. And as I listened to the men describing the terrifying limitations and contradictions that they faced in prison. Rarely did they talk about the crime of the past, but they did talk about the obsessions and motivations, the hungers that drove while they were in the streets. I remember a time one man said, the difference between a criminal and a civilian is that we criminals use that term we criminals we go out on the street and we don't have a plan he said the civilian doesn't put his hand on the doorknob without a plan <laughs> boy this jolted me alive just the saying of it as I looked at the differences in my own life that well, here's a civilian, but sometimes I'm going out on the street without a plan, too. This is very powerful. They were exploring the shame, the anger, the efforts to face their enemies, inner, outer, to win, to accommodate, to grow. Their successes. And one word kept coming to me as I took part in these Friday morning conversations. I'm not different from these men, I thought. 
I'm not different from these men. I'm a criminal. Not that my crimes were of the sort the state should spend dollars on to try to adjudicate. No, that's not my point. Rather this. What motivates them, has motivated them to their crimes, is that the same feelings, the same thoughts, arising from the same place. We are brothers, absolute. I can hardly be certain of conveying to you how light was this insight, how not, not awful, not heavy, to become brother with men inside. This was profound. It's like taking wings to be with them. The words of the Roman playwright from, I think, around 2,000 years ago named Terence. Perhaps you've heard this phrase. He says in a play, he has a character say, I am a human. Nothing human is alien to me. There's commentary from St. Augustine watching this play several hundred years after it was written. And he says, the whole audience leapt to their feet clapping when they heard this line, I am human. Nothing human is alien to me. It so moved Augustine to know that in this crowd who were not Christian mostly, there was the spirit of the Christian. The ethicist Miroslav Wolf expands somewhat on this idea. From a distance, the world looks neatly divided into guilty perpetrators and innocent victims. Yes, that's our normal teaching The closer we get, however, the more the line between the guilty and the innocent blurs, and we see an intractable maze of small and large hatreds, dishonesties, manipulations, and brutalities, all reinforcing one another. Now, filing through those corridors of the prisons, where I have worked and learned. I was also a teacher at Sing Sing when I moved to New York for several years. I was teaching Christian ethics and Christian history there. Filing through the prison, it looks about like this. Black, black, Latino. Black, Latino, white. Black, black. Latino, white, black. You know, most Americans have been whitewashed in the belief that justice is colorblind. This is a terrible wrong that has been done, that we've done to ourselves. It's part of our way of having our madman out at the edge of town. We have this teaching, this lie, that prisoners have simply plucked the bitter fruit of their bad behavior, and that's all there is to it. 
But an evil far more insidious is hidden outside the bars than inside. For hundreds of years now, Americans have drowned their black and brown citizens in poverty, violence, and sorrow. This done in order to deal with the disturbance, the guilt within ourselves. In the years since the publication of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, some of you have read this book perhaps, such an important contribution to understanding our situation. More and more Americans refer to the book and are perceiving the dreadful, deadly, and threatening seriousness of the spiritual crisis that we are in. Alexander calls it a racial caste system. She calls it the third such system. First slavery, then Jim Crow, then mass incarceration. Ways in which the dominant class have dealt with their own needs, have created a problem in order to have their greeds. Here are some numbers, not many. One in 14 black men is in prison, compared with one in over 100 white men. The penalty, this is changing as new laws are being passed, but up until quite recently, the penalty for possessing 100 grams of powdered cocaine, the drug preferred by white people, the penalty for 100 grams of white powder cocaine is the same as one gram of crack cocaine a cheaper drug, one used more by black people or by poor people, we should observe. And so we managed to have reasons to, in our mind, to funnel black people into prison. Well, of those who use crack, 15% are black 85% of those in prison for crack are black. Do you follow that? A tiny fraction of crack users are black. 85% of crack penalties are for black people. This is madness. Whites make up 65% of crack users, but only 5% of those in prison for crack use are white. This this is madness. Now, I could flood the whole hour with more statistics. I won't. The sum of it is that the prison system has been developed to help the dominant society keep on using and abusing whom it will without perceiving the depth of its guilt about its own violence without ever choosing a new path, without ever coming to ourselves in that wonderful phrase from the story of the prodigal son. Among the symptoms of this repressed relationship to evil, 
is despair and all of its most obvious signs, addiction, suicide, alcoholisms, all because we cannot see that we are brothers and sisters, absolute, with every single member of our society. No distinctions needed. No need to be innocent, because you aren't. We aren't. None of us is. In a different context, I once observed here that when conflict arises in a close relationship, if you fight hard and win flat out, you lose. Every married person knows this. <laughs> if you win flat out in a close relationship, you lose. The tragedy of an exceedingly polarized society is that those who are controlling power actually lose sight of this. They think, no, it would be useful to distort the election districts and to suppress the vote and in every way to maintain power and win all the time. And they have forgotten that if you win flat out with a close relation, you lose. And that is what has been happening in the system of mass incarceration. Who that hears her brother, her sister, crying out as if in the voice from Lamentations. Was that hard to read out loud? It was really hard to read and maybe hard to hear. But the one who offers to read such difficult text is really suffering for us in an important way. The words pouring out of the mouth of the supplicant are just like those from a man in prison, saying, the heavy, I cannot escape the heavy chains on me, and though I call and cry for help, my way is blocked with hewn stones. My teeth are made to grind in the gravel. My soul is bereft of peace, and I've forgotten what happiness is. My God, that is the story for millions who that hears that cry or knows it is being raised up in, and it cannot hear it can in any way desire to separate ourselves forever from these. When Jesus restores the man in the story, the man with the demons, to health, you would think that the townspeople would say, Yay! But the story tells this deep truth we're getting at today. They're afraid. They say, Jesus, get out of here. We hate what you have done. Fascinating. And then, as if the story was, being, was not done yet, the man says to Jesus, I want to follow you. Now, nine times out of ten in the stories of the Gospels, when somebody says, I want to follow you, Jesus gives instructions. How? This time he says, ah, not you. You, he says, go home to your friends. You see what's happening here. He knows that the man is healed, but salvation isn't personal. Healing is not personal. Or if it is personal, it's not enough when it's only personal. 
That's another bad teaching of the church down through 2,000 years, is solo salvation. I call it helium balloon salvation. I die, boop, I go to heaven. This is not the Bible, not the story, not the gospel. No, healing is social. And Jesus sends him back into the community. Go back. He calls them to your friends. They don't think of him as a friend, not yet anyway. And tell what I have done. Well, the outcast must come home. Perhaps you know something of how hard it is for a man or woman coming home from prison actually to live anywhere. We have written laws saying you must go back to the neighborhood you committed your crime in. It's not quite like that, but almost. Which is to say, we would love to see you in prison again because we want to put you back in the worst, hardest place. Prior to Governor Pataki's rising to power, the rule was not like that. You could go to anywhere in the state, anywhere in the state where they would have you. The program I was involved with in Western, in Western New York State received men from all over the state into houses in Buffalo and Rochester until Pataki came. That ended. Then you only could receive men who were citizens prior to their crime of the very city in which they were returning. So we made it hard. And we make it so that you can't have public housing and you can't get any food and you can't get a job because everybody wants to know whether you ever committed a crime before they hire you. And, 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 and. We make it impossible. Most, some states, many states, uh, also say you may never vote again. You are cast out forever. And we are surprised that our problem, what Baldwin called the Negro problem, continues. We made it because we want it. I'm talking about the dominant culture. We. Well, we'll end here. Go home to your friends, says Jesus. It will be a long path. It will be a long path before our friends can come home in a profound way. And we mature in a profound way as a society to receive them, to love as indeed the Christian gospel encourages us to do and, and promises that we have the strength to do, that we can find our way. You would think any Christian would warm to this. Very many do not. But it's not our duty to give account for others' fears, rather for our own, for ourselves. And so let us pray for that wisdom that Augustine observed in a play of saying, I am human. Nothing human is alien to me. And I leave you with this. Waiting to get into Sing Sing prison one cold winter day, tucked inside a tiny little foyer that it can't hold more than four people, I started reading what was on the walls. And there was a plaque to a former warden of Sing Sing Prison. And there in Latin, these words, 
taken from the first person singular into the plural in Latin. Nihil humane. Nos alienum est. Nothing human is alien to us. Nothing human is alien to us. Apparently, some warden of the 1930s felt that this was the way to write a prison story. I don't know how he succeeded or whether he did, but I know it is the spirit in which we will grow. Amen.